This is Chad Harrison, and you're listening to Hope Alive, applying God's word to your daily life. Hi, this is Chad Harrison, and I am the teaching pastor of Lake Community Church and have been serving as a pastor for 25 years. I'm also a practicing attorney. This podcast is designed to help you study God's word and find God's will for your life. I pray in the name of Jesus right now that God would open up his word to you and allow you to see him and to know him and to know his will, that you might glorify him and that you might walk in faith and power each and every day, especially today, in Jesus' name. Reaching the very end, Psalm 149, I think it's I think it's a very interesting psalm. I think it's a psalm that 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 really it starts off being a praise song and it starts off being and then it kind of diverges and and moves into another a whole nother direction and when when i read it it is a song that i have read before uh more in the context of government and economics rather than the context of a spiritual reading of it as we read the book of psalms and read through the book of psalms and we're coming to the very very end as we get to the very very end can you believe back in march we started this and uh, and now we're in the end of january and in 10 months I, I made it through a whole book, the one of the longest books in the Bible, the book of Psalms. It is of the utmost excitement that that I do that, and for just many reasons, because I just really never thought I'd ever have an opportunity to do something like that, just because of the length of time it would take to teach through a book of that size. And now it opens up new worlds for me because I feel like I can preach through or teach through all the big books of the Bible and and have a have an outlet where we can move fairly quickly through them so that you don't feel like it's an eternity and and I don't feel like it's an eternity. Let's start with the book of Psalms and then I'll just read to you some of the things that I feel are important as we go through it. It says praise the Lord. That's hallelujah. All the Psalms, all the final Psalms in the book of Psalms, to start with praise the Lord. It means, hallelujah, it means uh, go to God and worship him. It means bring praise to him. It's the start of, it's the start of worship. It's a worshipful heart. The Bible, we've been in, we've we've quoted the Psalm that says, enter his gates with thanksgiving and enter his courts with praise. That's how you start. You start with a little hallelujah. Praise God that we're going in. He says, sing to the Lord a new song. And remember, that's one of those, that's one of those ideas um, that, that's one of those ideas that, we've been through over and over again. It is very important to sing a new song. It's very important to sing a new song. Why? Because we sing the old songs, remembering the great things God has done in the past. We sing new songs to God because they're based off of what God is doing for us right now, what God is working out in our hearts and our minds right now. There's nothing wrong with the songs of the past and there's nothing wrong with the new songs. And the reason it, the reason there isn't is because, because God's been at work and God still is at work. And so God will be at work in the future. You know what they're going to be? They're going to be down the road, new songs. And the reason there are is because our God is an intimate, active God in the lives and the, and the ministry of his people. And if he's going to be active in our lives and active at work in, in what we're doing, we ought to sing him songs of victories past, and we ought to sing him songs of victories today, and we ought to look forward to songs of victories in the future. He says here, he says, let Israel rejoice in their maker. That, that, is, that is true. Let the children of Zion be joyful 
and their king. The kingdom of God ought to rejoice, and we ought to rejoice in our maker, and the one who made heaven and earth, and the one who brought about life. We ought to rejoice in that, and we ought to rejoice in his kingdom, and his kingdom come. And you say, is his kingdom come? Yes, it's in your heart. The kingdom of God is inside of you. And we think, okay, yeah, God's in my heart. No, don't diminish it. Don't diminish that in your mind. Expand that in your mind. Expand it. Allow it to be in its fullness and completeness. Expand it in your heart and how you see things. Expand it in in how it affects the way you view the world. Expand it in how you relate to others. Expand it in how you see the events of life going on around you. Because the kingdom of God is inside of you. The kingdom of God is inside of you. And he's our maker and he is our king and he dwells with us, not separate from us. He doesn't sit in a capital somewhere far off. He is here in our own hearts and his kingdom reigns in our hearts. And so he says, so it says, verse three, he says, let them praise his name with the dance. Now, let me say this. When I was a young minister on staff at a big church, the first church I was at, and, and we had a staff meeting, and we discussed dancing, and not dancing in church, but dancing, not dancing in worship, but dancing, having a dance at the church, having dancing going on at the church. And uh, you know what? I was real young, and I was real quick-tempered and passionate, and I just got on my high horse about not having folks dance in the church. And you know what? I find myself almost, I guess it would be over 25 years later, and don't think that's true. I just don't think it's true. I don't think that's what, what we, what, that's that was the position I took that day. I don't think that was a, a good position. I don't think it was a biblical position. I don't think it was a position at all. And and I'm just talking about dancing in general. I have found that that that, that generally is the purview of the modern day Pharisee. That's one of the things they find to to argue and fight about and to go to war against and to make the center point of what they're dealing with at the moment, the hour. And you know what? I think we ought to dance before God. And I definitely think you ought to dance with the special one that God has given you. And I'm totally on the other end. And he says, he says in verse three here, he says, the psalmist says, let them praise his name with the dance. And obviously, you can praise God and rejoice before him with dancing. He says, let them sing praise to him with the timbrel and the harp. And I'm not sure what the timbrel is. I'm going to guess it's some form of tambourine. I know Matt says that if there was an instrument that I would be probably really good at, it would be the tambourine. And um, I'm saying that would just not be, that would be so distracting in worship. And by the way, anytime you're in worship and you're lifting hands or dancing or any of those things that's going on, remember, you're not to attract attention to yourself. Any form of worship is to bring attention to God. And that's that's really the dividing line of deciding whether or not you should or should not be doing it. If you're bringing attention to, if it's glorifying him, if it's pointing toward him, you ought to be doing it. And if it's not, if it's becoming a distraction and you're becoming the focus of the of the activity, then you probably ought to you ought probably ought to let that kind of move on past and wait because you're going to get an opportunity to to do that. And me playing a tambourine in the worship service would probably be we don't say probably we definitely know that would be distracting. We just we just know that it's just the way it is. Me and a tambourine would be very distracting. Am I right? And 
Diane says, amen. And so there you are. He says, let them sing praise to him with the timbrel and the harp. Instruments are important. We need more instruments in worship. And people say, I'm not very good at it. You don't have to play very loud. And you don't have to be, you don't have to be playing things that you cannot play. But you can get up there and practice leading worship. And as you get better and better, the louder and louder your instrument can be. And the more you can be a part of leading worship. So if you know how to play, you ought to get up there and at least be a part of the background and be a part of be a part of leading worship. And so he says, let them sing praise to him with the timbrel and the heart. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. Notice there's a reason why God, there's a reason why God loves us and likes us and wants to be around us. And it's very pleasurable when God's God realizes when your heart is tuned in to actually wanting to be in his presence, how honoring is that? That's real honoring. I can remember oh, in ages past, in my as those who are older than me and my family would say in my great-grandparents and then my grandparents and then my, my parents, the main thing I want from you is just to see you. And you, that seems so, that seems so empty and rehearsed and not, well, that can't be totally true. You just want to see me. As I get older, I realize, yeah, that's pretty much it. God has provided for me. I don't really have any needs that need to be met by someone, especially my children or hopefully down the road, my grandchildren, but I just want to be in their company. And you know what? I think that's the wonderful thing about God. He wants you to be in his presence. He wants you to want to be in his presence. And by wanting us and desiring us to be in his presence, that is a, that's a neat thing. So he says, for the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will, he will, he will beautify the humble with salvation. Notice when we come into his presence and we're humble before him, he brings his glory down and he beautifies us. He makes us beautiful before him because we're humble and because we're willing to come and be in his presence. He says, let the saints be joyful in glory. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Notice when we get when we get to when we get to glory, when we get to his presence in heaven, he's going to be he wants us to be joyful. And notice in heaven our worship, our time there, our work will be done on the earth. All that can be done and all that will be done and that's that symbology of the bed. He says, "Let the high praise of God be in your mouth and a two-edged sword in your hand." And he says, let the high praise of God be in your mouth, uh, meaning our tongues ought to be always praising him, and let the double-edged sword be in his hand. What is the double-edged sword? It's the word of God. It is the word of God, and that is our weapon. That is the weapon of our battle, and you need to understand that because we are in somewhat of what I would call a battle in these days that we're in. And uh, I find it interesting that that the viewers, when things are just terrible and they seem to be going astray, God's people tune into Him. But when when they don't have a don't have a whole lot of hope and don't have a whole lot of purpose, they 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 turn back and and their and their and their attention toward God wanes and it falls off. And I, I see that I've seen that over years and years of me doing ministry and being a part of ministry. That's what happens. But notice this psalm takes a weird turn in the last three verses. And the turn is actually in verse six when he says we need to be worshiping God, but we need to, as part of our hand or as part of the work that we're doing, we need to be using the word of God for a purpose and a will. He says to execute vengeance on the nations. 
Wow. So we need a two-edged sword in our hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron to execute on them written judgment. This honor have all his saints. Now, there's two ways to look at this. You can either look at this as meaning when we come back with Jesus, like I was talking about last night. If you see it that way, when we're coming back with Jesus and we're going to do all these things and we're going to execute judgment on the nations and bind the kings of the earth and the nobles with iron and execute on them written judgment, that this could be prophetic in that form and he could be talking about that. When I was younger, especially when I was in college, on up until I went to law school, I, there there was a tension with me in the formation of our nation because what basically happened was is that there were colonies that were separated and set apart, and they were not being ruled under their own consent, but they were being ruled by a king who was doing what was in the interest of himself and not in the interest of the people of America. And, but the problem is that the New Testament quite clearly teaches us that we need to be subject to our authorities. And there was that tension there of you've got, you've got basically a king who is, or a tyrant who is ruling from far away for his own benefit, and the people are suffering under that tyrant's rule. And, and so the question is, what do we do as Christians? Because whether you like it or not, the majority of the of the people who formed this country, who wrote the founding documents, were at the very minimum deist, meaning they believed in God and they believed in a higher being that had created the universe. Many of them believed in the teachings of Jesus Christ, and most of them, most of them were active, vibrant Christians who formed the country. And so I know that they knew scripture and I know they knew scripture way better than I knew scripture. And I understood that they had to have some foundational formation for, for throwing off the rule of King George and taking on their own position as well as an autonomous state separate from his power. And when I read and I thought about these things, do we, I do wanted to read to you basically the beginning of the Declaration of Independence so that you can understand what is going on. It says, when in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station in which the laws of nature and the natures of God entitle them, a dissent, respect, to the opinion of mankind requires that they did, should, should declare the cause which impelled them to the separation. What does that mean? Basically, when it says there, when the course of human events, it becomes necessary that one people dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another. Well, what would cause that? Well, what might cause that would be us having a different, a different point of view as to very deep moral and political issues and, and us having a deep chasm between us and them due to due to their desires or our that are both economic and political and things like that. And I think the way this is written, this is the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America. When I read that, I think it's interesting that they use that, that, that is important to understand that. And then they go through, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal and they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among them are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men 
delivering their justice, meaning they understood that governments existed for the purpose of maintaining the rights to life and to liberty and to happiness or the pursuit of happiness, which would involve us the gaining of property. He says, they de deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, meaning that governments exist not autonomous to the people, but they exist at the consent of the government. And as I read this psalm, and as I look through the psalm, I begin to understand that they were using biblical ideas all throughout the Declaration of Independence. They were using biblical ideas to explain why they were breaking, because remember, it is the declaration, meaning it's te the telling of our independence from the king in England. And they were using biblical ideas and not only political discussion, but biblical ideas to explain why it was necessary for there to be a break between us and him, us and the govern the governing body which was over us at that time. And the reason is because governments exist to, to protect the rights of the people, the natural rights of the people. And you need to understand that the natural rights of the people that are given to them by God in creation, and those natural rights are the right to life, the right to liberty, and the right to maintain property or to seek happiness in the attaining of the work of our hands, the ability to control what we do, our labor that comes from our liberty, to control what we do and how we do it and how we decide to do it so that we can live life on our own and live our lives autonomous from anyone else. That is the pursuit of happiness. He says, to, and the governments exist to secure those rights. Governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. And these ideas came out of the Enlightenment. And as I read this, when it says here that let them praise God, let the praise of God be in their mouth, meaning we need to be always worshiping God and seeking his will in the matter, and the two-edged sword, meaning the word of God in our hand, so that we can execute vengeance on the nation and punishment on the people's meaning, so that if we make actions that are about politics, about the nations and about the people, that they come from the word of God. And in this it is, and he says, he says, and to and he says, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters and irons, meaning just because you are in authority over us as a people does not mean that you don't need to be brought to account for how and the way in which you've governed. And if you, if the way in which you've governed is corrupt, it ought to be dealt with. And it is not wrong to expect that from those who govern us. And uh, as I read the scripture and as I read this passage, I think it's telling that when you study the word of God, when you read the word of God, you realize that God has been at work in these things from time immemorial and that our nation was founded on people who worshiped God regularly, who recognized who he was almost exclusively. All of them were deists, at least. They at least believed in God. And almost the total majority or a super majority of them, an amount in the 80 and 90 percent of them, they believed in Jesus Christ and they believed that the word of God was was the double edged sword, Jesus Christ, which they should use to govern not only their personal lives, but to govern their lives as a state and principles that come from the word of God should guide how the laws and how the state operates.
It ought to operate in New Testament principles of loving your neighbor and, and loving each other as he's loved us and loving God with our whole heart. But it also ought to it also ought to govern the way we see our governing authorities. And we should submit to them when they're just and when they're proper. But when they're not, you can quite clearly see from this psalm that it teaches that that we have a duty to measure our government up to the Word of God. And if it's not, we're a nation of free people, and free people should not allow our government to remove these fundamental rights, and not made-up rights, not made-up rights out of whole cloth, but fundamental rights, the right to life, the right to freedom. And we, earlier this week, celebrated Martin Luther King, who was a great champion of what? He's a champion of freedom. And if you listen to his speeches and read his word, he come, he, what does he use? What does he use to champion that right of freedom? He uses this. He uses the Holy Bible, the word of God. And, uh, and he, in a powerful and a directed form to deal with an issue at the time that he was dealing with a right way of dealing with it, a, a rightful way of dealing with it, which is with this, what did he hold in his hand? The double-edged sword. And he talked the people, if you read the speech, I have a dream speech, the old reference of I have a dream is a reference to Moses on the mountaintop. It is a biblical reference, and it is a biblical idea of being set free and entering into God's very best because we have been endowed by our creators, as the Declaration of Independence says, with certain unalienable rights, meaning rights that cannot be removed from our pe from people because they are built with them fundamentally inside of them. And those are the rights to life, to liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, meaning the ability to use my liberty and my freedom to, to do what I want to do, the works of my hand, and gain from that work and gain from that labor a benefit toward me because nobody else controls who I am in my labor. Nobody controls the direction of my heart, and my mind, and the desires, and what I want to be involved in, what I don't want to be involved in. Nobody directs that except myself. And we found those truths to be self-evident, that we were created equal and endowed with those rights. And any government that begins to remove those rights, then we have the right to execute judgment on that government because those rights are fundamental. They're natural to us and given to us by God. As you go today, I pray that the Lord will bless you and keep you, that he'll make his face to shine upon you, and that he will give you hope and peace today in Jesus' name.